Max Richter is known for his ability to translate profound human emotions into music. Max's record Sleep is the most streamed classical album of all time, and his catalogue has surpassed three billion streams. A prolific collaborator, he scored and performed for Kim Jones for the Dior shows and the new Wayne McGregor and Margaret Atwood Ballet, Mad Adam, and arts collective Random International on the Rain Room installation. Max has collaborated with film directors Denis Villeneuve, Martin Scorsese, and Ari Fullman, and scored film and television including Ad Astra, Black Mirror, Shutter Island, The Leftovers, Arrival, and his Emmy-nominated score for Taboo. He's the co-founder of Studio Richter Ma in Oxfordshire, England, with his partner and artist, Yulia Ma. Max and Yulia have a huge passion for using the land to farm and provide a sustainable working environment, as well as using creativity as an elevating force within society. Happy Earth Day, and welcome to the Creative Process and One Planet podcast. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Great to be here. So our brain, you know, lights up, as you well know, when it hears music. I think it may actually be the first sense that's awakened properly, even before we merge into this world. And so neuroscientists tell us that music triggers these different pleasure centers and release dopamine. I'm wondering for you, what is your experience as a composer when you're in search for that melody or listening to the music of your own mind? Well, yeah, as a composer, I, in a way, sort of coexist with a continuous stream of music, which is just sort of happening to me mentally at all times. You know, I've had this experience since early childhood. Just at that time, you know, I thought these sort of musical fragments, ideas, melodies, but I thought of them like I thought of my other toys, just, you know, my building blocks or whatever it was, or my drawings, that I would just sort of play with these sort of bits of music mentally. And then, you know, later on, I found out that that was called composing and that you could do that as a thing to do. And uh, I sort of still have the same feeling about it, really. I'm, I feel very lucky, in a way, to be able to make my life inhabiting this language, which I fell in love with in early childhood, and that I found a way to integrate that with you know, my other occupations, my other sort of life concerns, which are to do with really, you know, trying to interrogate the bigger questions of our lives. And for me, music is a sort of, it's like a vehicle to travel through life. Oh, yes. I really like this idea that you've spoken about that music may be a vehicle for thinking, because I think it's also transcendent and intangible in some ways when that's also the beauty of it. Yes, I mean, that's one of the great mysteries of music, isn't it? How is it that these vibrations which travel through air, which, you know, cause little bits inside our ears to vibrate, how is it that these essentially inanimate physical phenomena affect us so deeply? It's a, an extraordinary and wonderful mystery, and it's something I'm sort of very glad to be part of, really, that sort of continual involvement with this sort of strange and wonderful phenomenon is it's a wonderful thing to, to be connected to yes and it really is because it's something we can i think you know i write and the different art forms are nothing is quite as transcendent as music the other ones you can kind of pick it apart i suppose you can pick apart the notes but there's also mm. something else going on that you can't hold it you can't <laughs> that's how it works yes it's an interesting thing isn't it because you know obviously as part of my training, you know, we study how you put notes together to achieve things, you know, harmony and counterpoint. That tradition goes back into the, well, into the Renaissance, into the Middle Ages, you know, how one sound and another sound can interrelate. So there are lots of rules, there's lots of ways of doing that. You know, we have the tonal system and the chord, sort of family of chord structures and all of these kinds of things that tell us how these things fit together, but they still don't explain what happens, you know, when you're sitting in a concert and somebody starts to play, really what you're experiencing is a kind of a flood of all kinds of emotional and cognitive things, which just sort of happen sort of by magic. And that, in a sense, is almost, it's the same experience really for us, those of us who work with it, you know, I can look at a piece of manuscript paper and say, yes, these notes fit together in a certain way and they will do something. But that experience of them doing something is the same for me and as magical for me as it is for someone sitting in the audience. There is this intangible extra thing. And this is to do with, I guess, 
our biography, our listening history, all kinds of other things which we sort of connect to the musical experience. In a way, it seems that music may explain some of the magic of the other arts as well, because it's that thing that you can't touch and people don't know, where do your ideas come from? And they would say, well, it's sort of like music. It's just like one thing and just it builds mm. and it can help us conceptualize. And it, it's so interesting. And you talked about being first drawn to music. I wonder what you were as a young boy, like your first musical memories. Well, uh, yeah, my first musical memories are actually... I can sort of pinpoint the time, really, because it was while we were still living in Germany. And I moved to the UK when I was three, so it was before that. And I had this experience of overhearing my parents playing a record of some Bach double violin concerto. And I had a kind of very intense and rich encounter with this event. And the first was that I had this feeling that there was a sort of some sort of strange overlap between this sonic object and the experience of sunlight. That there was a kind of a, somehow they fit together. It wasn't exactly synesthesia, but they, there was a sort of, I experienced the music as kind of sunlight in a way. And the other thing was that while I was listening, obviously followed the melodies and, you know, loved what was happening in the music, but I also had this intuition that there was something else behind these sounds, a grammar, uh, something which caused them to add up to more than just sounds so that there was a structure some kind of grammar some kind of language which was governing the relationships and made them sort of add up to something more and i wanted to know what that was <laughs> i wanted to know what the rules were that made that structure happen um, so that that was really one of the things that really lit the fuse for me oh that's beautiful because it just shows you were already having you're being moved artistically and emotionally but at the same time from the very beginning it's like intellectual how does this work that show that's always the thing that you love it so much and how can i do that how does that i agree and i think music is very it's a very complete experience because of that you know you always have in music these sort of two poles between a sort of feeling experience sensation and a kind of intellectual engagement with it you know all musics have those in sort of different ratios don't they? Those two modes of being, you know, you have that kind of sensory world, the tactile world of the music, but also you have what is it that makes that happen, which is how the music is put together. And you say that it was a kind of, you connected it with daylight. And I'm just wondering, was like, even then, like, was that the beginning, the seeds of on the nature of daylight? Well, I guess light, daylight, luminosity these are sort of very powerful images for me and i think they are they're universals you know the experience of sunlight daylight has all kinds of poetic associations i guess it's about fundamentals it's about beginnings you know the idea of dawn the idea of daylight these are very sort of deep images within human culture i remember years ago reading jung where he formulates this word numinous something which has a kind of extra sort of almost transcendent sort of luminosity about it. And he associates various images, ideas, archetypes with this quality, something which kind of points beyond itself, points to kind of bigger things. And I guess daylight, the experience of light, the experience of sunlight is like that for me. You're like the birds. I mean, they see the sunlight and they break into song. That's it. It's very natural, right? Yeah. And, you know, I was wondering, because I don't know about the creative process of making music, but I was wondering, you know, what is that like, you know, when you're kind of chasing an idea, you're kind of hearing it, mm. it's almost complete, and there's this pursuit. And I wonder, does that even the momentum of creation end up in the work itself? Well, I mean, for me, the creative process is, is a sort of a continuous thing in the sense that I'm writing kind of all the time at some level. And that doesn't mean I'm sitting at my desk all the time, but it does mean that I've got a continuous thought process, a continuous engagement with the material I'm trying to shape. And it's many different kinds of processes. First of all, obviously, an intention. You need to have an intention. What is it I'm trying to do? But then you get a process of making things. And then 
you get into a process of dialogue with the things you've made where they start to take on properties and it feels like the material has intentions of its own. So then you're trying to, it's like herding cats, you know, sort of corralling this material into some kind of structure, some kind of formed object. It's, then it becomes like a sculptural process on the large scale. But at the small scale, of course, there's still a sort of quite technical situation happening to do with how the notes are sort of woven together to give rise to larger structures. So there's all of those kinds of processes. And then there's also a lot of patience and listening involved. You know, so I've made something. What is it really? You know, leave it aside for a week, a month, a year, and try to see it for the first time. That's, so it's a sort of, it's a little like composting, you know, in the garden when you've got stuff and you just put it all on the heap, you know. And then later on, let's see what's in that heap. But time is a super important part of that process. You know, there are things which, which are just not ready and you have to just wait until they make sense to you in a new way or you can discover them almost as though someone else had written them. That's sort of, you know, trying to achieve a kind of objectivity about the material. So there are many different mental sort of orientations towards the work which go into the final composing. I very much like that idea of continuous creativity or almost as though the work could already exist somewhere out there, you know, perfectly realized. And you just have to like tap into this conversation that's taking part. I like, oh, yeah. the, oh, you know, there's these Sabbath telephones and uh, you don't, you know, you really, you don't have to dial the number, but you just kind of, you, it's like getting a process of getting out of the way. You just remove it and it remove the I don't use mm -hmm. them, but I, I like this idea. It's already there. It's, it'll dial itself if you just allow it. So it's this yeah. sculpture. It's beautiful to think of a sculpture of something that doesn't necessarily have a physical form, and yet it has every form. It, it travels everywhere, yeah. like water. Yeah. I mean, I think this, you know, so much of it is about trying to get to a situation where you can sort of uncover the work, which is it's, it is sort of out there. And it's about sort of having enough patience, peace of mind, concentration, opportunity to, yes, to kind of let it come into the foreground somehow, you know? I like there's, there's I think Picasso says that the way, I hope that when inspiration strikes, it finds me sitting in the chair, you know? So it, you do have to be in the chair in order for that process to happen or in some way in the chair, you know? Maybe not literally, but. You need to be sort of ready. <laughs> yeah, it's these gifts. I really do feel they're gifts. I mean, if you speak to so many artists and whether knowing where the ideas come from or you know it all doesn't come from you in some mm. way, it's ref a reflection of something else that you've had the patience to listen mm. and, and cultivate. Yeah, I'm really interested in that idea. I mean, certainly, you know, we experience... You know, as creative people, we experience that, you know, creative work is in some way feels like a dialogue with something else. But, you know, whether that something else is kind of out there or whether that something else is actually just a part of our mind, which is normally inaccessible to us, it, it sort of doesn't really matter in a way. I don't feel it. It doesn't. It's sort of not important. But I do think that sort of that feeling of there being a dialogue or some sort of inquiry into something else. That's fundamental to creativity, I think. Yes, tapping into something. And sometimes it's something that we knew even when, you know, you heard it before you were three years old. You were able to think yeah. those deep thoughts. So it's like a reliving. Speaking about what takes place deep in our minds, you know, why do you think that sleep has become one of the 21st century's most successful classical works? Well, sleep is, sleep is about fundamentals. It's about human fundamentals.
So it's a piece which is multi-dimensional in a way, obviously. At one level, it's simply a lullaby. But that itself, you know, the lullaby tradition is a human universal. So that in itself is already quite a substantial, sort of, in a way, important part of the piece. But then all of the musical objects within sleep point to universals, in a way. You know, the use of the very low frequency tones. You know, these are things which we can't play with acoustic instruments. Can't make those sounds. We hear them in thunderstorms and earthquakes. So that's, in a way, things which are bigger than us. And a lot of what sleep is about is sort of evoking this sense of connection with things that are bigger than us. The spectrum of the piece mimics the spectrum that the unborn child hears when it's inside the mother. So again, it's something which is about tabula rasa, something which is about fundamentals, things which are universal, kind of, you know, the origin of being in a way. So all of these sorts of gestures, all of these kinds of ideas in sleep, they all point to this, you know. And the idea of sleep as being, in some ways, a negotiation, a conversation between a kind of existence and non-existence. You know, our little life is rounded with a sleep, you know. This idea of it being a kind of a, a fundamental state. So all of the musical language, all the musical objects, uh, suggest that sort of feeling. So, and I think we, we all need that. You know, we all need to connect to these fundamentals, to the sort of big, the things which are sort of pre-civilization, the things which are before all the noise, the things which are shared, very simple human experiences. I think there's something about our culture which sort of erodes those connections to those experiences. And I think particularly large-scale creative works can allow us to reconnect to them because they feel like alternate realities. So when you go to a sleep performance, you're entering a kind of a, in a way, a different world. You know, you're, as an audience member, you've made a decision to go into a room with 500 people and be vulnerable, going to sleep with strangers in this kind of altered space, altered state. And uh, yeah, it's a kind of a community which goes on a journey together. So all of these sort of basic human things are encapsulated in the piece. You're teaching people, I think a lot of us have forgotten how to listen. Like we broadcast ourselves, but we don't listen. And I think in some ways, or maybe even teaching them how to sleep or slow and listen to themselves, even listen to your music, but listen to their own bodies and minds. Yes, I think it's sort of neuroscientific aspect of, of the way that the music is constructed uses this principle of rhythmic entrainment where you have repetitive sonic auditory events, which actually sort of tune in your physiology and can slow you down a bit. You know, sleep mostly operates at, you know, 40 BPM, which is like really slow, really, really slow. And it tunes the audience into a different kind of a tempo, tunes us in as listeners and performers, actually, as a, at a different tempo. So, yeah, I think it can sort of unites everyone who's, you know, playing and listening into this kind of community. And so in your music, which I've heard you describe as a dialogue between sound and silence, you know, I wonder, what are you like in your silences? What am I like? <laughs> well, I mean, for me, I always feel one of the questions I ask myself when I'm trying to make a piece is, why should I add more sound to the universe, to the world? There is already a lot of music in the world. So I guess I need a good reason to do that. And, you know, all the projects I've done, really, even including the film scores and these sorts of other things, they're rooted in an idea that there's a reason for me to do this. You know, whether it's a sort of socio-political one, like as in the case of the Blue Notebooks or Voices or Infra, or something more sort of personal like sleep, although sleep arguably is also, I think I've described it as protest music in the past. You know, I need a good reason. And that's, in other words, I need a reason to sort of break the silence and to put sounds into a world which is already full of sounds. So that's my sort of general attitude. And then on a kind of a note level, 
compositionally, it's the same process. You know, it's why these notes, why are they there? And I like this idea that every note should be there for a good reason. Every sound needs, should be there for a good reason. Otherwise, let's not have it, you know, because silence is an incredibly valuable element and, uh, you know, very much in short supply in our world. So if there isn't a good reason for the note to be there, then let's have silence instead. Yes. And you mentioned this dialogue, this interplay where when the music is in service or in dialogue with, you know, film or your television work. And how does that process begin for you? I mean, I don't know if you're always able to look. I know that it's added in this last stage, but are you always looking right there at the images or sometimes you're given a brief? How has it worked with your different projects? Varies, really. I mean, I, I sort of only do cinema and film and uh, TV projects which really matter to me, where I think it's important there's something being said here which I want to support. So mostly I will start with just making some sketches from the script. Of course, it's a, it's a journey and it's a fundamentally collaborative journey. So, you know, once the images start to happen, then there's a whole dialogue process with the rest of the creative team about how music can best inhabit, support, serve the rest of the material. And it's really a series of experiments. It's to do with, you know, keeping a very open mind, trying things seeing what happens. It's an exciting kind of collaborative laboratory experiment, I think, working on film. It's, yeah, it's a, I enjoy it, the sort of puzzle solving, the questioning. It's good fun. And I should mention that I've so enjoyed in The Arrival, and, but I do know Tom Parada, The Leftovers. And I think this relates also to this message of the environment and facing our own extinction. And I love the the departures music. And I don't know how that worked because you're composing over a long period of time. Yes, well, with The Leftovers, I just thought it was such a an absolutely brilliant piece of writing and a fantastic set of conditions in a way to to ask the big questions. You know, because The Leftovers is really, you have the sudden departure and then you have how do all these different people try to find a kind of an answer to this question which has been posed. And it's a tremendously powerful piece of storytelling, I think. And yeah, for me to be involved with it, I was just I was just struck by how beautifully put together it was as a piece of writing. And obviously, I mean, every every dimension of the leftovers was, was just extraordinary, really, from the acting to the directing. And Damon obviously is brilliant, absolutely brilliant filmmaker. And they were very, very wide open, really, to me to just do my thing. So I thought about this music in a lot of different ways. Uh, obviously, the main image in the leftovers is the sudden departure. So the idea of things going away. So I used this idea really to set up the musical palette. So obviously, some instruments can sustain sounds like string instruments or you know winds or brass, and some can't. And those are where you know the piano, for example, cannot sustain a tone. The tone plays and then it starts to go away it departs. So the instrumentation for the leftovers is all based in instruments where the sound departs. So it's, you know, harp, piano, little bells, these kinds of things. So those are the sort of, the music, in other words, embodies the image of departure in, in, in a lot of different ways. And that instrumentation is one of them. And then I wanted something which felt like a kind of a spine, because there are many different stories in the leftovers, and I wanted something which could pull them together. So the, the image of the departure, that piano music, which appears in a few different ways, yeah, that was very conscious to sort of make that almost like a character in the story. It's something to kind of hold your hand through all of this, all of these different scenarios which happen, which are really, you know, very diverse. And it is interesting because I hadn't thought about that, like the moment a note is sounded, it it's dying, you know, it's dying yep. and it's diminishing. And so I love the metaphor of that. And I think that, you know, music has this strong, like all music could be also heard as a kind of requiem in that way. It's limbs mm -hmm. in this echo, it's a diminishing. And mm -hmm. I thought these, yes, the big questions, because you ask yourself, you know, what will remain in what will remain of me? How, when mm -hmm. we all have to leave at some point and how do we live on in the memories and Music is wonderful in that way because you can really, it can really speak across centuries. 
And mm. in your own music, you have your original scores, your original music, and then you have also the four seasons and you have the, you can have these dialogues across centuries. And how what's the excitement and the challenges of that? And how do you continue the dialogue? Yeah. I mean, Recomposed is, in a way, it's a project which makes very explicit and puts into the foreground a process which is going on in music all the time. You know, at one level, all music is about previous music. You know, all guitar bands are sort of either a version of the Stones, the Beatles, the Kinks, you know, you choose. So it's the same within classical music tradition. You know, everything is built on what happened before. Composed comes up really for me personally because of a kind of my own emotional relationship to the Vivaldi original. So as a tiny child, four or five years old, I fall in love with the Vivaldi. I'm playing it all the time. It's brilliant music. It's also brilliant music for a child because it's short movements and great melodies, stories, drama. And then in adulthood, I sort of grow to really dislike this piece because I'm just hearing it all the time on the TV, on jingles. On telephone, when you're on hold, advertising, it's everywhere. So I have this kind of dichotomy in my head where I both love it and hate it. And for me, Recomposed is a kind of emotional salvage mission, really, to try and rediscover the things in the Vivaldi, which I love. So I had a look at, if you like, Vivaldi's landscape and decided to, rather than follow the trajectories he made in it, to like go off-road in a way go cross-country through his landscape and see if I can discover other things in it. And, yeah, that's recomposed. It's, it's just another, in a way, it's like walking around a sculpture, you know, just seeing different things in the Vivaldi original. I often wonder, you spoke about the grammar of music, and I often wonder also about the language of the communication, the music of animals, and I wondered how as you talk about like recomposing, like they seem to have an essential melody and my ears are not sensitive enough to understand all the different ways they might be riffing. I mean, I don't know how you listen to nature, how you, how that might inform your creative process. And if you can hear those nuances and changes, the artistry of animals. Well, the, the natural world has its own sonic language, its own, its own fingerprints. And that's one of the beautiful things actually about being out here, you know, we built this studio out in the woods. And as somebody who's been a city dweller most of my life, the city obviously is a very rich sonic environment, and we're sort of habituated to that. But, you know, out here, there is another acoustic environment, another sort of sonic fingerprint, and always changing. And every day is a sort of a different sound picture. I walk out the door, and uh, yeah, you do hear it changing over time. You know, the leaves are coming in now, different kinds of the bird song, the wind sounds different. It's a wonderful thing to be around and to to experience. Yes, it really makes, it awakens the senses. And so tell mm. us more about the Studio Richard Mar. What were your principles in founding it? Because I know that it's cutting edge, mm. you know, solar powered, heat pump technology, and you also engage with the community. So... So this is a kind of a 20-year dream that Yulia, my partner, and I had, that we would 
found a studio which we could use for our own work. Yuvira is a visual artist, but also to uh, provide a facility for artists, you know, in a maybe earlier stages in their career who don't have the opportunities to record music or spend time concentrating on their work. So we've set up a program of residencies. We have younger musicians, people involved in the art world to just come and spend time here. And we make available, you know, the recording facilities or whatever else they need. We have the opportunity for them to stay in the woods in these little huts. And really we're founding a sort of distributed creative community, a collection of, of people who can come and you know, spend time here. Uh, we're also working with uh, local schools to have, you know, kids come in and they can record their music or whatever it might be. And the studio is, we're trying to make it as kind of 360 degrees as possible. So the center of the building is a cafe and that cafe is is sort of fueled, if you like, from the organic garden. So there are no food miles. We grow everything. The electricity comes from the solar on the roof. The building itself was upcycled from a big old tractor shed when we took the insides out and put new insides in, which is all the studios. So it's a project which really is the outcome of a, in a way, an idealistic vision of how creativity can sort of coexist with the broader community. But it's something that Yulia and I have, you know, we passionately believe in it. We believe in the possibility of, of work having a, an elevating effect in society more broadly. And in a way, it's a laboratory. You know, we're excited by, you know, other minds, other people with their own ideas, their own thoughts coming in. So it's a space where we can, you know, exchange ideas. We can explore new things. It's, yeah, it's a very multidimensional project, but we're really enjoying it. It's beautiful. It's like an ecosystem. And I like it because I find if you're just in your own discipline, it can be good, but you have to listen to others from outside or even from the scientific communities, which I know you've also done, you know, as a foundation for some of your music. And so it becomes this ecosystem, like you see in the forest or even underwater, where you think there's no noise, but there's actually a lot of chatter down there too. And what I love is in these systems, it becomes, the, for you, a creative circular economy, as well as having a low footprint. Because in the natural world, what dies becomes food for another. Yeah, exactly. Exactly right. Yes. Yeah, I think the, the idea of a sort of ecosystem, both in terms of creativity and, you know, outputs, time spent, people thinking, but also, you know, the way the cafe works uh, and the way the studio connects into the community with other artists, all of these things, I think are, these sorts of networks are really at the heart of the idea of the project. And that's so good that it also you also work with schools because as well it's not, we often think we try to separate the arts or the STEM or whatever, but also with music we find more and more students and our university team members as well they study listening to music it helps them concentrate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes, that's right. Yeah. And I think it's it sort of you know the idea of connecting with the local school it's not like everyone has to be a musician, but even if you're not a musician having the experience of being around music is a positive. It is a gain. It's a thing which just seems to illuminate the rest of life in some way. Again, it goes back to this sort of puzzle of how music works and what it is that we were talking about at the beginning. There's something about being around music or being involved with it in whatever way it is that just seems to lift everything else up. And I think yeah, if we can offer that to to sort of local kids, then we should do it. Yes, particularly this generation, you know, they're facing big challenges. I mean, our own possible extinction and all of these things. So we're told you have to be serious, you have to study, you have to work. And they they have to think about serious things at such a young age. This idea of play and real childhood is something that is been affected by that. So I think that introducing music and the arts just brings that play back in. You know, the Steiner schools or all these other different, there have been so many studies that show that the sense of play, you know, is so linked to learning as well. It's not separate. It actually helps. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'm very sort of passionate about that idea. In fact, our kids actually went to Steiner school the first few years of their lives. It was very interesting because, they, you know, as you say, you know, their focus really is on essentially on creative pursuits one way or another. 
Yeah, I like this. There's a Nietzsche quote, isn't there, about creative autonomy, where he says that, you know, really maturity is to rediscover the seriousness of a child at play. You know, that's what maturity really is, to sort of get back to that thing where, you know, children, when they're playing, they just sort of, they've got a kind of a fantastic focus, but they're not tense, you know, it's just a sort of natural focus. I find, you know, having a conversation with a young child or just watching them, you know, they're like natural philosophers always asking why and not thinking, you know, and just and combining things. As you say, they're a laboratory. It's, it's so beautiful. And it's like, oh, I can't forget this. Why? It's really so important. Hearing this conversation between Mia and Max is truly insightful and really shows how inspiration strikes the creator. As simple as imagery from childhood or observing the environment or contemplating on the nature of what you can feel or what you can hear. And Max has a natural ability to find these inspirations with ease. and. I believe that is why his work has such a human approach to it because he relies on these experiences that are very common within our society. Just seeing sunlight go through a window or knowing the feeling of falling asleep and he is able to embody those feelings within his work. And that's what struck me about what he said was everything is built on what happened before, which I believe is a beautiful way of explaining how he's able to repurpose life into his art form. So as a visual artist, I really appreciate how he credits the visual art and imagery around him. Now knowing his call and response method, I am excited to see what he can create in the future off of his new discoveries and how he's able to build a new world off of that inspiration with his artistic storytelling. Now back to the interview. Going back to your beginnings, was it 2002, your solo debut of Memory House, and then you started to gain acclaim and recognition at this time in the neoclassical genre. Could you elaborate on that time and you know how that impacted your career going forward? Hmm. Well, Memory House was a, a project which I'd, had been sort of cooking for quite a long time. And in a way, it was an experimental piece to see if the kinds of things I wanted to do musically could be used to tell stories, to communicate. In a way, it was a sort of will it fly question, you know? <laughs> Is this actually a thing? And the, the impetus for it really was to do with the fact that classical music culture at the time was very much tied to a kind of modernist orthodoxy, which is a kind of post-Boulez mindset where piece of music was in a sense an intellectual manifesto rather than a sensory experience you know it was atonal it was super complex that was what orthodox classical music culture was i didn't want to do that because i felt that music was a way of talking and if i want to talk to people then i need to use the language that they can understand so that meant that i really was if you like exiled from mainstream classical music culture, which meant I couldn't get played or recorded. So I had to do this myself if I wanted anyone to hear what I was doing. And that's what Memory House was really about. It was about finding a way to be heard without having to resort to this kind of super complex eternal music. Memory House itself, I felt was creatively, it kind of did what I intended it to do. I felt like on a personal creative level, I felt encouraged that this idea about music would actually work. On a commercial level, it was a total failure. <laughs> and really, the only people who really got to know about it were other composers. We didn't have the opportunity to perform it for about 10 years. So, you know, it was just a kind of a non-event in, in terms of the public, general public, or even listening public. Really, the only other people who heard it were other composers, <laughs> other artists, you know, musicians interested in experimental things. So with that, if you like, inverted commas, failure, I thought to myself, well, this means sort of no one's listening, which means I can just continue doing exactly what I want because no one cares. So there's no 
as it were, risk. <laughs> There's no risk of failure because I've already failed. <laughs> so then I just carried on. You know, I, I wrote the Blue Notebooks. Memory House had a sort of a focus on the sort of big historical moments of the 20th century. The Blue Notebooks focused, or rather, I guess the jumping off point for the Blue Notebooks was the scenarios around the Iraq conflict. record was recorded just a week after the, the big global marches of, I guess, 2003, from memory. And it was a response, really, to the idea of the kind of fictionalizing of politics that started to happen around that time, in a new way, I guess. So, yeah, and the Blue Note, both of those records really, I suppose, set a kind of a pattern or a general approach for me in terms of what a project, what a piece of music could do and what its origins would be and how I wanted to, what I thought music was for, in a way, for me personally. Yeah, you always offer, you bend towards the light, but you are often coming from these, you know, dark times or subjects or with infra voices on the Universal Declaration of Rights or the London terrorist bombings. And does it always, does the marriage of theme and like a social response or dialogue, mm -hmm. does that always come right at the beginning or does it like, would it emerge sometimes when you we hear what's happening in the music? No, these are really starting points. They're, they're just, yeah, I mean, a piece like, you know, Voices, this comes out of conversations Yulia and I were having in sort of 2017, 2018, you know, sort of Trump era, I guess, where you just think, hang on, this isn't right. This is, this is all wrong, what's going on here. Okay, so in the way that, you know, somebody who isn't an artist, they would just say that to their friends, they would have a conversation, I don't like what's happening here, this is all wrong. Well, as artists... We also want to have this conversation. We also want to convey our thoughts and feelings about the world we're living in. And it was a very simple, in a way, intuitive response to the things we saw happening around us, the things we see in our daily lives. Artists are just, in a way, of course, ordinary people. And it just so happens that instead of having a conversation over coffee with a friend about something... I make a piece of music about it. It's the same, same impulse. I think so. And often it can come from a deep impulse, but the need is strong. Mm. Yes. And so you also work, you, Kim Jones and the Dior shows, and so there's some of your more recent collaborators, Wayne McGregor and Margaret Atwood. You know, tell us about some of those collaborations and the discussions and you know how it evolves. Yeah, I mean, I guess really the common theme is that Ultimately, this is about conversations. It's conversations about how we tell stories and the kinds of things we want to talk about. With Margaret and Wayne, so a fair bit of last year was a new ballet, which was premiered in Toronto, which will go to Covent Garden in 24. So this is based around Margaret's Mad Adam trilogy of novels, which in a sense is a sort of a typical Atwood dystopia, but it is very much centered on environmental questions. Actually, weirdly enough, it's, there's a pandemic at the center of the story. 
And of course, the project was delayed by an actual pandemic by two years. But it's a brilliant piece of writing. It's a very rich piece of world building. It's quite substantial novels with a huge cast of characters. And we, yeah, we spent some time figuring out how to present a rendering of this as a live piece of play with live music, which was a sort of a puzzle solving exercise because there's so much text and data in the books. It's only different kinds of writing. I thought it was quite challenging to figure out how to turn this into something which would be a coherent piece of dramatic storytelling for the stage, Some, but very enjoyable. And Wayne, obviously, is a, you know, he's a brilliant collaborator and a very, he's a very sort of multidimensional thinker. And we, you know, we've done a lot of work together over the years and it's always really fun, really, really fun. So that was Mad Adam. It's a piece I'm really, I, I'm sort of very fond of it. No. I had a great time doing it. And, I look forward to it sort of coming back to life in 24 in, in Europe. Yes, yeah, so, so the work with Dior has been really fascinating. So this starts out with a shared passion and enthusiasm for, I guess, modernist literature and specifically the writers around Bloomsbury Group and Virginia Woolf, most of all. So some years ago, I made a ballet called Wolf Works, again with Wayne, which is centered around the three novels of Virginia Woolf, Mrs. Dalloway, Orlando, and The Waves. And Kim, Kim Jones is a sort of lifelong devotee of Virginia Woolf and all things Bloomsbury. So he got very excited about this and he suggested that we use some of this music for a show of theirs. And I was very happy with that idea because Having talked to him, you know, it's clear that there was a sort of a shared passion and enthusiasm for this work at a literary level, rather than just as a sort of, I mean, he's very profoundly passionate, devoted, you'd really say, to this work. So we did that. And then over the last couple of years, we've sort of gone a bit deeper in a way. Most recently, we made a piece for Paris based around the wasteland in a way in celebration of the the anniversary which was an extraordinarily beautiful sort of exploding of the text which was read as part of this performance where we used some music from infra because the wasteland is actually one of the sources of this other piece of mine called infra so there are many sort of touch points with kim and he's a tremendously creative sort of multi-dimensional person so that's been it's been great fun to do this. And you spoke of sources, so literary sources. I mean, I mean, of course, yeah, and your partner is a visual artist. So you just speak about some of those sources that can give you a tuning for. Well, yeah, I mean, I think Yulia is really important in, in kind of everything I do because, you know, we have collaborated explicitly on, on some projects, for example, on Voices, you know, that's very much the outcome of a million conversations we had, and she's made some beautiful visual material for that project. Sleep was a great big long conversation between us. You know, we've sat around in a, over the kitchen table for 20 years having ideas and talking to one another about ideas and creative ideas and approaches to how creativity can sit in the world and what should we do next and you know, how's her work going and how's my work going? I mean, this is what we do. So if we're talking about sources, then I guess that's really the primary source. And then, of course, we're all, you know, we're all, we're also on our own creative journeys, ex exploring and researching and thinking. And it's true that literature is a big part of what I've, what I'm about in a way. You know, I love stories, both music, literature, a visual art. These are all ways to experience how another mind encounters the world. And that for me is really the most, most exciting thing about it. You know, when you're reading a piece of writing by someone or you're seeing a piece of visual art, you're seeing a window into that person's encounter with reality, that person's biography, what things mean to them. And then you can compare notes. You know, you can compare notes with that person. How is it that person sees these things and how do I see these things and it's a way to understand one another and I think that's really one of the most important things that creativity does in our world. Yes and I wonder because you have so many collaborations and ideas and I wonder if sometimes I mean I know that ideas and projects build slowly but I also know sometimes they just come 
like all at once. And I wonder if you ever wish like, oh gosh, could I just put an electrode to the side, you know, before you lose it, you know, and download it to Sibelius, you know, score writing program, to make sure nothing is lost. It's true. I think there are two kinds of ideas, aren't there? There, there are the sort of, they're like butterflies that just seem to just kind of go by and you have to catch them quickly. And I have got like manuscript paper all over my house, pencils everywhere. I've got little, you know, recordings and I'm constantly scribbling little things down. So that, that happens a lot. And then it's a question of, you know, sort of composting those things over time. But then there are other kinds of ideas like which just sort of arrive fully formed. I mean, that happened, for example, in the case of Wolfworks, you know, the first two acts, the Dalloway Act and the Orlando Act, you know, there were a very conversational, iterative process with Wayne. The third act for the waves, I just wrote it. I just wrote it down over a, a kind of an afternoon because it just seemed to just arrive. And I just, you know, just sent it to him and said, here you are. And he's like, okay, thank you. <laughs> That's it. We're done. So you never really know. You do sometimes, obviously, you know, sometimes you feel like there's a long journey and it's almost like quite hard won territory. You know, you're discovering territory and it's, and it it's, can take time. And other times it's just there. So, yeah. Yeah. Those are the beautiful gifts. You uh, have to go through the, you have to go through the other stuff. I think you wouldn't get if you did go through the other. But on this note, you know, you're known for the electronic elements of your work and for really, you know, bringing that into, you know, commercial sphere. It's become more accepted now. You know, there have been so many developments now with AI, and I don't know what that means in the musical sphere, what your response is, and are there some things that you would avoid or, you know, just, I, I still yeah. feel like there should be an author, but that's not, that's yeah. my belief. Yeah. I mean, I think the thing about AI is AI creative work made by these systems are, I mean, obviously they're a variable quality, generally speaking because of the way that over decades, I guess, you know, research dollars have gone into sort of speech recognition and language models. They're probably more advanced than the sort of compositional things. The generally speaking, AI music is not very good, I think, at the moment. Probably much less good than text. But I think there's a bigger question because going back to this idea of other minds, creative work is about how a human being encounters reality and how they respond to that. And it's a way to share the experience of one human being with another human being. That's really what creative work is. That's how it, pretty much how, you know, that for me is the test. So an AI can simulate the products of that and that's fine. You know, it's a simulation of what a human creative experience might be, but it isn't the same thing. It's a different thing. And actually, I think it's a bit of a, I mean, personally, I'm sort of more interested in computers doing the things that human beings can't do. <laughs> you know, I don't really want a computer's version of Middlemarch, you know, because I've got George Eliot, thanks. You know, I'd rather have, you know, a computer write a text that I can't imagine a human being writing, you know. And the same in other spheres, you know, I'm sort of, that to me is much more interesting. So... I mean, I can imagine that as AIs become more established, there are going to be economic consequences, that's for sure, because it's, it's perfectly easy for a system to be trained to simulate, you know, writing, I don't know, film score or something. It might be quite easy to do that, actually. And that, I guess, is going to cause some economic problems. So in a way, I guess we're facing a situation where, you know, technology sort of hollowed out sort of physical jobs. It's maybe now going to be start hollowing out sort of knowledge-based jobs. So I think that is a big challenge. And it's going to need some careful thinking about how we manage the social consequences of that. So that, that's a big thing. But I think in a purely creative level, as far as musical creativity is concerned, it goes back really to what I think creative work is, which is, if you like, the evidence of a human mind encountering reality. That for me is what's interesting about creative work. And that's what makes me want to engage with it. And if you take the human mind out of that, then mm. I'm just not, I'm not that interested. <laughs> yeah, I think it just, it lacks the passion or the reason for being. As you say, you have a reason for being. I want to 
say something about this. And, oh, you know, I tried it out. I said, you know, write me a poem about an eagle. <laughs> and they gave me back and I said, and it sounded good. I said, wait, that's Tennyson's The Eagle. Just shoveled around. <laughs> so they're hardworking AI bots, but they're also lazy. They are quite lazy. They are quite lazy. I asked, we have we had this fun game with the kids the other day, asking it, asking chat GPT silly questions. And we asked it, who would win in an arm wrestle, Mitski or Albert Einstein? And it just made up a load of nonsense about Albert Einstein and how muscly he was. And therefore, he's going to, he's going to win the arm wrestle with Mitski, who's a songwriter and not known for her physical strength. And it was just sort of a lot of old rubbish. It was very entertaining and hilarious, but just not true. <laughs> That's true. They really can't see. Then they don't have bodies. That <laughs> just tells you that they have no. That's the other thing, and I just do want to mention that because this is the mind-body problem that I think that we experience now, and the arts can help us bring those back. And you know, like animals, are like we're, they're connected, mm. and that's the thing—they don't have bodies, so they can't speak to our whole selves. Exactly. Yeah. Mm. So just in, in closing, because you talked about children and as you think about the future and education and the kind of world we're leaving for the next generation, what do you share with your children and what for you is the importance of the arts and what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? Well, yeah, I mean, it's a challenging time, right? In a way, I feel like this is a sort of these next, I don't know, half a dozen decades maybe are the kind of pinch point where things can either start to get better or get a lot worse. And that's to do with, you know, large scale ideas about what society is and what it should do. And, you know, how we distribute wealth, power, opportunity, education, and creativity. And creative work, I think, can be a catalyzing thing, which can help us to see bigger contexts, engage with deeper meanings. And these are all ways to figure out what's important and what isn't important. Uh, the world is very busy and we do tend to get sort of a bit sidetracked with things which are actually not important. Creativity is a way to reconnect with the things that are important. So you're right, you know, the kids, you know, my children, our children, these are, they're facing, yeah, the, probably some of the biggest challenges, you know, we've ever faced in the way they're existential. And I think, you know, the kinds of narratives, the kinds of perspectives that we put into the world with creativity can be a way to sort of elevate the gaze a little bit. You know, just, you know, speaking for myself, you know, somebody who lived 250 years ago, Beethoven makes my life better just every day. It's not huge, but it's a little bit better every day. And I think that's what creativity can do. And, you know, if you multiply that across time and across populations, you can, you know, make a little change. You just have to think of, you know, what's going on now in Iran, you know, with the revolution that's sort of afoot there, you know, various songs have become talismans to sort of elevate the populace, to unite people, to support them. You know, Beethoven 9 playing in Berlin in, you know, 1989 at the fall of the war. These are things which, which just can sort of make a tiny difference. And I think that's what creativity can do. Definitely. And, you know, we can't underestimate the importance of beauty and joy. And going back to the natural world, I mean, every morning the bird sings. They don't know where their next meal is coming, but they still find a reason. That's, right. that's exactly right. Yeah. Well, thank you, Max Richter, for inviting us into your imaginative world and for your music that teaches us to appreciate life's rhythms so we can harmonize with the natural world the way animals do, the way the smallest organisms and plants in the forest up to the largest planets move in harmony and balance, and the way an orchestra moves us as though with one mind and one heart. We really have an opportunity to do something beautiful in this life. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to One Planet Podcast and the creative process. Thank you. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. 
Max Richter's music featured in this episode in order of appearance was On the Nature of Daylight from the Blue Notebooks, Path 19, Yet the Frailest from Sleep, Spring 1 from the New Four Seasons, Vivaldi Recomposed, Lullaby from the West Coast Sleepers from 24 Postcards in Full Color, Vladimir's Blues from the Blue Notebooks. Music is courtesy of Max Richter, Universal Music Enterprises, and Mute Song. Associate interviews produced on this episode was Lissy Salvador. Digital media coordinator was Sam Myers. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.